Well, this is our final week in our Modern Family Sermon Series, and we've been talking a lot about this table and the different ways this table represents how we need or how we're invited to shift and, and make adjustments in how we do our families together. Last week, we were reminded to make room for those in our lives that are in the older generations that often see, are, seem invisible. And so I thought it would be a great place to start this morning at the table with my grandparents. About two, twice a year, I would find myself sitting in the dining room with them, and they had a massive china cabinet right next to the dining table. Inside of it, no china. It was just full of family albums and pictures of my grandparents' travels. After we would finish a meal, my grandparents, who traveled the world, would pass these photo books around and regale us of the stories of their travels. Honestly, as a kid, it was kind of boring. <laughs> but these moments are some of my favorite memories as a kid. See, my grandma and I, we were close. She would often spend one-on-one -on -one time with me, she invested in me and our relationship a lot. And so when she passed, I, I didn't just lose a grandmother, I lost a friend. My grandfather, on the other hand, uh, he was a lot harder for me to get to know. I remember him as a stoic, a career engineer, who was incredibly faithful to his family, his church community, and an all-around amazing guy. But we didn't have heart-to-hearts like I did with Grandma. Let me show you a picture of him. Uh, this is, I'm about a year old. Uh, that's my mom's dad on the left and my dad's dad on the right. So at that age, I'm going to look something right between that. <laughs> I really like my, my mom's dad's hairline. Uh, I'm ho trying to hold on to that. So though my grandfather and I... Uh, didn't really connect a lot uh, when I was younger. That all changed when I was in seminary. My very, one of my very first courses was pastoral counseling, and in that class they told us, your first assignment is gonna be to build a genogram. Now it's okay if you don't know what a genogram is. What all you need to know is the project itself meant I had to call every living family member of mine and ask them very intrusive questions about their past. And by this time, my grandmother had passed, so I, when I called my grandparents' landline phone, I knew that my grandfather would be the one to answer. And I was anxious. He didn't really go into lots of details. He wasn't a storytelling kind of grandfather. So when I asked him the first question, and he took a full hour to answer it, I quickly realized that my grandfather was in a different stage of his life that maybe he was feeling lonely, that maybe he was doing some self-reflecting on his own life. And that phone call was the first of many. And each time I called, he would talk for an hour, sometimes two. And what grew out of those incredible phone calls, at least for me, was a deeper understanding and love and admiration for my grandfather, Carl Fritz Larson. Another thing that grew from those phone calls was a deeper understanding of who I was, given who he was. He told me all his favorite stories about his faith journey, his career in the military. He told me that he helped design the helicopters that the US military was using even today. He told me how he met my grandma 
and their early adventures before, during, and after raising four children. You see, every time I spoke to him, I felt like I was finding a missing puzzle piece that I figured was long gone. But he would help me see and understand again more of who he was and more of who I was as a family member of his. His stories filled my heart and nourished my soul. And that's what stories do. They help us know and understand others and ourselves even better. I wish I had called my grandfather sooner. Will you pray with me? Oh God, as we turn our hearts to you today, reveal to us what you would have us learn from your word so that we may better love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our strength. Amen. Our second scripture lesson comes to, uh, today from Deuteronomy chapter 6. What we heard earlier was the beginning of chapter 6, and that's where we find the Shema, which is how Jews start their uh, Sabbath weekend, reciting that together. And this, what we're about to read, is at the end of this chapter, and it's primarily concerned with Israel's history and the transmission of that history to the generations that follow them. The community in this text is likely the very same Israelites who had both experienced slavery in Egypt as well as freedom from that slavery by the staff of Moses and the sheer power of God. As their relationship with God begins to grow, they realize they now have a faith to share with their children. To me, this is one of the most powerful scriptures we have in the whole of scripture. Let's Look at it together. When your children ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your children, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord displayed before our eyes great and awesome signs and wonders against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. Then the Lord commanded us to observe these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our lasting good so as to keep us alive, as is now the case. If we diligently observe this entire commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, we will be in the right. This is the word of the Lord. The first reason, oh, I believe this scripture is profound for two reasons. There's a lot more, but we're just gonna focus on two. First is because In God's answer to this big question this community is asking, God shows how unique he is compared to all the other gods being worshipped in that time and in that place. All the other gods worshipped in this era were transactional gods. If you pray the right prayer and sacrifice the right things, then you will appease the gods and rain will come and your crops will grow. If you get it wrong you're done for. Instead, Yahweh, 
the one true God, responds to this question out of love because Yahweh is a relational God who loves his people. No other God in all the myths of the Mesopotamian era and the Bronze Age would answer that question in that way. Again, instead, they would have said, well, you must follow the decrees and statutes or otherwise I will kill you or let you die of hunger or thirst or by sword or by plague. But no, Yahweh responds to the question by telling them a love story. When your children ask you why we are in relationship with God, the God of the entire universe, tell them the story of how I showed my love for you. Tell them how I set their grandparents free from horrible oppression. Tell them how I kept my promises and gave them not just their freedom, but a promised land where they could flourish and enjoy all the things I made for them to enjoy. God says, tell them stories. Today's sermon is called Beyond Our Baptismal Vows. What we mean by that is this. When we as a congregation bear witness to a child or an infant being baptized, we affirm as a congregation that we will actively take part in the faith formation of those children. It's a beautiful calling and purpose as a community to transmit our faith to the next generation. As a dad, this next piece is really important to me. (laughs) We want the children and youth of this community to know the good news. We want them to know that there is a promised land for them too. That even when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they don't have to fear any evil because God is with them. We want them to know that their story doesn't end with crucifixion. It ends with resurrection. We want them to know, students, we want you to know God adores you, that God made you, that God loves you more than we do. We want you to know that God doesn't make mistakes, so you can't be one. It's not possible. We want you to know that God is not distant. God's not a white bearded judge in the sky morally policing you and waiting to do harm to you for making a mistake. We want you to know the overwhelming grace of God that allows us to be in relationship with him. And we want you to know that the adults in this room and in this world don't know what the future holds but we'll claim today that we know who holds it and that we're in good hands. And this is our task when we affirm our baptismal vow, that we will give our children that gift, those gifts to the very best of our ability. And how will we give them that gift? I offer the method that God exemplified for us in our passage today. My friends, my community, It's our privilege and our duty to share our stories of God's faithfulness in our lives with our young people. In the mid-1990s, psychologists Marshall Duke and Robin Vivush were trying to figure out what elements would strengthen families and help children overcome at-risk environments. 
a noble research project. They discovered that the children who knew stories from their family, origin stories, stories of how parents met and fell in love, stories of success, stories of failure, had the best chance of developing a strong sense of self and an inner resiliency. Eventually, they developed a do you know scale, a list of 20 questions designed to see if a child knew stories from their family. Questions like, do you know how your parents met? Do you know where your parents grew up? Do you know what was going on when you were born in your parents' lives? Do you know some of the lessons your parents learned from good and bad experiences? Young people who knew these stories from their familiar, uh, were familiar with these stories showed higher well-being in a variety of indicators, including self-esteem, academic competence, levels of anxiety, social competence, and general behavior. It was not the accumulation of various historical facts that made children competent and resilient. It was the relationships and interactions in which knowing family stories meant children had spent long periods of time listening and talking with parents, grandparents, or other members of the family. Further research found that the majority of family stories are transmitted by mothers and grandmothers. Guys. <laughs> Where? Often at the dinner table, at family gatherings, or vacations. The stories became a continuation of these relationships and connected a child across generations, helping children foster what became known as the intergenerational self, a sense that they are part of a community bigger than themselves. They identified three kinds of family narratives that each impact a child's strength and competency. First, the ascending story the tale of success, the rags to riches story, or of pulling up oneself by the bootstraps. Second, the second kind of story is primarily tragic, a descending narrative of failure and misfortune. Once upon a time, we were on top of the world, but then we lost everything. The final kind of narrative, which is found to have the greatest strengthening effect on children, are the stories that oscillate. The family stories that help children develop the intergenerational self are the stories that show resiliency despite varying circumstances. We've had good times, we've had bad times, but through it all, we stuck together. Storytelling holds a special place in Christian tradition this can be seen in Israelites' faithfulness, passing down stories of God's faithfulness to their future generations. They did such a good job of it, we're reading it today. Similarly, in the life and ministry of Jesus, he often taught or answered a question through complex stories rather than simple statements or answers. And I think it's because life itself is complex, and Jesus understood that. And when a story is complex, it allows for more nuanced thinking, greater inclusivity, greater love. Just think of the story of the prodigal son. 
We all know that one for the most part. Do you remember what prompted Jesus to share this parable? Luke tells us just before Jesus tells this story, this, that tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, to hear him teach, to hear him preach. And the Pharisees were mumbling to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now Jesus just could have said, you bet I do. He could have just said that. He could have said, that's why I'm here. But instead, he tells that parable. And in that complex parable, exposes not only the truth that he welcomes those who the religious leaders rejected, but he also loves them just as much as he loves the most pious or faithful follower. So, how do we fulfill our baptismal vows to help raise our children in the faith? We tell them oscillating stories about God's faithfulness in our lives. And it means y'all gotta sign up to teach Sunday school. Y'all gotta sign up to volunteer at VBS. Y'all gotta sign up to find a way to help children understand scripture through the lens of your experience with God's faithfulness in your life, and that will make it come to life for them. It also means intentionally sharing meals or time together with other families in the congregation and being intentional, making sure stories are told and shared over a meal. Open the Bible together as a family. It's gonna be really intimidating to do that but read something together and and talk about how you've seen this in your journey with God. See, the best way for us to understand and teach our young people about Scripture is through sharing our lived story. And yes, maybe as a kid, I thought my grandparents' stories were boring, but that's part of being a kid who can't conceive what it's like to be on a cruise ship in Alaska. And regardless of how I felt, My grandparents knew what they were doing. They knew that they were helping me understand who I was through their stories. And that's a gift no one can take away from me. Look, our duty as adults is to make the Bible come to life for our children. If we don't, it's just another book. It it might even be a really boring old book that sits on the shelf. We can't let that happen because the Bible holds the greatest story ever told. Our reflection song today is called The Book of Love, and the lyrics you might think are strange, so I wanted to get ahead of it. But the writer of this song illustrates what it, this point so beautifully, that if we make the Bible come alive for our young people through our stories, then we begin to reflect the loving relational, intentional love that Yahweh has for us. So I'll close with a story that I'll share with my children one day when the time is right. An oscillating story. The day I turned nine, I knew there was nothing in the world I wanted more than a pocket knife. Many of my friends had them, whittling is fun, being able to open stuff around the house seems practical. The problem was my parents had a no-knife rule. We weren't allowed to use them, let alone have them. 
as my birthday approached, I kept dropping hints to my parents, like, remember the knife thing? And my parents kept dropping hints back, remember, we don't do knives. <laughs> we drove to New York from Virginia, three states away, to, to this table to celebrate my birthday, the one with the photo albums all next to him. And as we got there, I did what I always did. I hugged grandma and grandpa, I hugged my aunts and uncles, and ran outside to play with my cousins who were so much fun. Their parents were way more chill than my parents. So of course, I get out the door and there's Eric, my cousin, and he has a knife. And I said, Eric, can I, can I play with your knife? Yeah, sure. We're on the deck and this little ant is just marching, living its life. And I'm in my nine-year-old wisdom. Well, I was almost nine. I guess it was that birthday. I stabbed at the ant and the knife split in two. The blade just popped right off. My cousin Eric shrieked. And then the girls came over and they started shrieking. And then everybody's shrieking. So, of course, out the back door comes aunts and uncles and moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. And there I am at the middle of everyone's story knowing I deeply disappointed my parents. So my father says, go downstairs to the basement. I'll be there soon. <sighs> and what seemed like hours passed by, I started to wonder if I'd be making it to my own birthday party. <laughs> As I was wondering this, I heard the door at the top of the stairs open. Here came dad. I was ready for my spanking. And I'd thought about what I'd done. And as my father entered the room, he got really close to me. And he knelt down and took out of his pocket a box. And inside that box was my very first knife. And that is grace. That is the grace of God that reigns over all of us. When we deserve this, God grants us this gift. And this is how God loves us. Now, I told this story at the first sermon, so everybody had tons more questions. So look, my dad went to the store <laughs> to buy Eric a new knife and decided he was gonna get me my first one too. So Eric got a new one and I got my first one. Will you pray with me? God, it's such an honor and a gift and maybe even a weight sometimes to be faithful stewards of your story and your faithfulness to us, knowing we've got to pass it on. God, I pray for wisdom and insight that stories would return to our minds of your faithfulness, that we can share that with our kids. God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for your grace. And thank you so much for the story that you wrapped us in when you came down to love us, to die for us and to rise again, to give us hope on this journey that we are on, on earth, until it is in heaven. Amen.